This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Going back to November the 13th at RBC Place, which we have to get used to being the convention center, Fight to End took place. And its full name is the Fight to End Homelessness. One of the organizers is Brett Lucier, and today they happen to be making a big announcement. Comes up just a little later on today. Brett, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mike. We were just talking about homelessness. We were just talking about the price of owning homes, the cost of owning homes, the challenge of owning homes, or even renting in London, Ontario, and how it is getting more difficult. What was it that made you want to do this and and raise money to help out in this fight? Well, being a born and raised Londoner, I think uh, I, I have seen London over the years. Uh, you know, my business is downtown London. I went to high school downtown London. I went to college, um, uh, went through downtown London. So uh, I'm very familiar with uh, the problems uh, that London's facing now. And I felt that uh, we needed to do something about it. And, and uh, you did. Yeah, we really did. I mean, uh, I'm still on a bit of an emotional high from it. Um, it, uh, it, it, you know, having people come up to you and say, you know, um, that this event was the best event that they've ever been to. And these are people that have been to charity events over 20 years. And they came up and said, this is the, the best run event, best entertainment value event, and unbelievable what we're doing and giving back to the city. And and, uh, in, and this is this heart. is an event that was a boxing event, and uh-huh. right there you would think people would go, yeah, but but boxing, but no, this this was something incredibly unique. How how do you feel that boxing translated to people saying, wow, that this is amazing? It was entertaining. You got to cheer on your friends, your coworkers, your your neighbors. Your uh, it was just amazing to see the community come together and support the. 32 participants that we had uh, participate in the fight to end. And, you know, they worked really hard, these participants, and over 14 weeks of training, and uh, we had a lot of help from uh, professional trainers in the gyms, and uh, just everything just really came together. So we're talking with Brett Lucier, one of the co-organizers of Fight to End, and I think people are counting the days until a possible return next year. What do you think? Could you do it again? Absolutely, 100%. You know, we, we learned a lot in our in our first year, but uh, we know next year will be uh, even bigger and better. And we're very excited tonight because we're actually announcing the amount uh, that uh, we will be uh, will be giving uh, to the charity uh, Youth Opportunities Unlimited um, that to hopefully continue the amazing work that they're doing. Talk to us about why it was that you wound up partnering with Youth Opportunities Unlimited. We met with a couple different uh, charities in the city that were involved with homelessness, and it was something that uh, myself and, and Adam Elmas, my um, uh, co-chair and co-founder of this, when we sat down about a, about a year ago now um, over coffee, and uh, we discussed our crazy ideas and uh, about uh, going through this event, and we had similar thoughts of what we thought was the problems that we saw in London and how we thought we could... Uh, uh, affect them positively. And, uh, you know, having connected with YOU, it was just kind of a, a match made in heaven that they just kind of, they aligned with our values perfectly. Um, and what we saw as, as a major problem was getting these uh, these youth uh, off the street 
And uh, when we formed with them our alliance towards their uh, the East End shelter, the youth shelter, first one of its kind, uh, it just it, everything kind of fell into place. So, Brett, finally, when and where will the check presentation be made? I'm, I'm sure you still want to keep the amount secret, but when well, and I, where I are you going to do it? Yeah, we'll do it tonight, and uh, we'll be doing it at one London place uh, overlooking the city that we're trying to help so much. Uh, events of this type usually make, you know, uh, in their first year, ones that are really successful, forty to $50,000. Um, I can tell you, Mike, that we made more than fifty. So we are extremely happy and proud of uh, our team that, uh, that put this together. Brett, congratulations on all the hard work. It's amazing to see what you put together. Can't wait to see what happens in year number two. And thanks so much for taking up the challenge that you've taken up and and helping to contribute as much as you have to it. Mike, I really appreciate your support, and uh, I invite everybody to follow along our social media and uh, take a look at the amount that we raised this year and know that next year is going to be bigger and better. So I appreciate it. Can't wait. All right. Thanks the best. All the best. Bye-bye. That is Brett Lussier one of the co-creators of Fight to End. And you can check out their website, fighttoend.ca, and they will make their check presentation later tonight. For some people, owning a house, that's, that's a long way away. And not just because they're young people, not just because they don't own a house right now, but because what they are doing is dealing with immigration issues. They're dealing with a country that they have been in or a situation that they have been in and trying to flee from it and trying to come to a country like Canada. And we've had some interesting stories raised by Global News, and we're going to talk about this. Brian Hill has been working on this for Global News, and there are a couple of decisions that have been made by the IRB which we don't hear a lot about. We can hear CSIS and know what that means. We can hear CRA and definitely know what that means. When we hear IRB, you know what IRB is? IRB is the Immigration and Refugee Board. And there are judges that examine cases and say, okay, you are looking to come to Canada. Then let's look at your particular case. And let's make a decision on whether you should be allowed status in Canada. So we'll talk about some of the stories that have come out because they're not, they're not necessarily what you would think. When, when we go looking at the United States, there's a lot of talk about how things are dealt with immigration-wise, at borders, and we've had a number of sad stories about children who have been separated from their parents, and that continues. And you think, yeah, but that's, that's an American problem. Well, maybe, yeah. Definitely, yeah. But at the same time, we do have something happening in Canada that we need to pay attention to, and it goes to judges and how they've been handling these cases with the Immigration and Refugee Board. And so we'll have an opportunity to talk about that in just a moment. And as well on the show, we're going to go to Queen's Park, and we are going to do that in about 10 minutes, and we'll get back to the bullying story. So still a lot of moving stories going on London Live, and we're doing our best to keep tabs on each and every one of them. But let's now welcome to London Live Brian Hill from Global News. Brian, thanks so much for taking some time for us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Immigration and Refugee Board. We just kind of mentioned the name and talked about the the IRB moniker that that it gets because it's the Immigration and Refugee Board. It's not something we hear a lot about, is it? Mm, I mean, in the context in the context we're talking about today, no. In the in the broader context of backlogs and lots of asylum claims and. Uh, the government trying to to address those issues, I, I think yes. But when it comes to specifics of how the cases are, the, at the border are actually handled, we know you're right. We don't hear a lot about that. Well, you've helped us to hear more about it, and some of the cases that have come up have certainly been very interesting to hear about. When you look at, at what you've been able to uncover, what have you found? So, in this particular case or cases we're looking at, we're looking at kind of at the, the way the the board operates essentially and and claims by uh, uh, lawyers and some of the asylum seekers have come here who are saying that the board's own guidelines for how cases should be handled aren't being followed and this is especially true in cases where uh, that involve really vulnerable claimants so uh, victims of uh, domestic abuse of sexual assault uh, claimants who come from countries where uh, say they're they're uh, they might be LGBTQ, and they come from a country where that's illegal, and they're persecuted for that. Uh, and so uh, what we've uncovered are some allegations of essentially uh, members at the board not following the rules in terms of how these cases are supposed to be decided, and, and, and the consequences of that can be quite severe for claimants. So how are cases like that supposed to be handled, then? Is there a, a good rule of thumb on this? Sure. Uh, so essentially, when it comes to certain claims, like so a claim based on sexual violence, let's say, or domestic abuse, uh, the, the, the board has specific guidelines. And really, these are guidelines that are supposed to help adjudicators make decisions fairly and to handle claims in a sensitive way. I think, uh, you know, there's, all, there's been a lot of discussion uh, about the way in which we as a society approach these uh, type of issues and uh, and how we uh, address complainants when they come forward with uh, issues of sexual assault, domestic abuse, women who are alleging these sorts of uh, incidents. And, uh, you know, in some cases, those aren't followed. So we've looked at the case of one woman from Nigeria um, who said she felt worthless and like trash and like she should be dead following a hearing at the board because the adjudicator in that case um, went down a line of questioning, essentially, where he was asking her, well, I don't really understand why your husband, uh, why would he harass you for all those years? Why keep beating you for all those years? Uh, why not just kill you? And on multiple occasions during the hearing, the judge asked the woman to speculate about why her husband, the man who she said raped and beat her for years, uh, didn't, quote, just kill her. Um, and so the allegation here is that this board was, member was particularly insensitive to the nature of the claim uh, and, and that he, he didn't appreciate the uh, nature of the allegations she was making. So this is a woman who said she was dealing with sexual assault, she was dealing with severe domestic abuse, and she was feeling worthless not because of that, but talking to the judge? Yes, yeah. Um she said that the process of that hearing made her feel re-victimized, re-traumatized. Uh, she said that the, the, the hearing itself uh, made her feel like trash, like she should be dead. Um, because uh, in the course of the hearing, uh, she was asked by the uh, adjudicator, uh, if your husband really wants you gone, why didn't he just kill you, um, is, is the quote. Uh, and so the woman said that, um, you know, even if you forget the merit, even if you forget uh, the issue of whether or not her claim is true, whether or not her claim is proven, 
the rules and the guidelines that the board establishes are there um, to protect claimants who come forward and make these sorts of allegations to ensure that the hearings uh, are conducted in a manner uh, that uh, provides a safe space and an environment for them to to freely express themselves. Uh, and in this particular case, um, you know, the, the allegation is that uh, when when the decision maker asked these type of questions, as I say, not just once, but repeatedly, um, that, that that put this woman in a very, very difficult position um, and, and ultimately made her feel worthless. We're talking with investigative journalist, online writer and researcher Brian Hill of Global News about a series that will look more at this sort of thing. Brian, who does the Immigration and Refugee Board answer to? It's a good question. Um, technically, they answer to the Minister of Immigration. Um, that said, uh, it's an independent uh, arm's length tribunal, um, and and there is good reason for that. Uh, we don't want, or or the government doesn't want, uh, political interference to you know make its way into the refugee process. So, for example. You don't want claims to be heard based on the whim of a government of the day. You want claims to be heard based on facts, based on the law, based on the evidence and testimony. Um, and, and so as a result of that, Canada has established an independent board. And, and uh, most people say that that's a great thing. Um, that said, though, stories like this, I think, do deserve and warrant a political response because ultimately the board does have to answer to politicians and into the law well brian thank you for bringing it to light we'll look forward to the series we'll tweet out some information on it as well and thanks for your time today my pleasure thank you that's brian hill he is an investigative journalist online reporter and researcher at global news and if you're just joining us we'll have this as part of our podcast which you can find at the end of every day 980cfpl.ca or on the curious cast network or wherever you find your favorite podcasts and it's kind of a, a a condensed version of London Live, and Brian certainly will be on there. But he has done some research and some investigation into some claims made by people who have gone before the Immigration and Refugee Board. And so this, what Brian said at the end is, is fascinating. We have a tribunal. We have it where it is independent, which sounds great. Because that means there's no political interference and you can't have somebody saying, well, da, 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 yeah, we've got to hit this quota. Got to do this. Gotta... So you don't have that. So you're supposed to have each and every isolated case and you hear the case and you make the decision and the person is either granted status or not granted status. But if you have people who are overseeing this, who are judging, and they're the ones that aren't following the policy laid out, then you've got a real problem. Then you do need political interference. And that's exactly where we seem to be right now. So thanks to Brian Hill and his co-workers for bringing that to light. We're talking about affordable housing in London and even beyond that, housing stability. Because that's what you want. You want stability in your market. And we're talking about the Housing Stability Action Plan that has been unveiled by the City of London. And unlike the bullying action plan or the anti-bullying action plan unveiled today by the province, this one actually has a timeline on it. And this one actually has some dollar values attached to it. So that's very good. 
They want to be addressing the homelessness crisis, and they have ideas on how to do that. They want to make sure that we've got safe, affordable housing options, and they've got ways to do that. And then they want to create better ways to access housing so that if you are stuck and you feel that you have no options, then we need a way to get help on this. And, you know, you can look at this and say, yeah, this this is a tough one because it does come down to capitalism. And we can look to Europe and we can look at what has happened there. What happens in a lot of European cities? If you look in the UK, what is something that is very common? When it comes to owning a home, has been for years. You pass it down through generations. You bet you do. Because housing prices there skyrocketed. And it became very difficult for new home buyers. You had to find ways for families to live together. Look at, look at how many other European cities have this happen. Where it's not just you and your immediate family... Grandpa and grandma live there, and then when your kids get older, you might live there with them, and that's kind of the way it's gone. So we're not saying that that's going to happen here in London, Ontario, but that's where the Housing Stability Action Plan kind of comes in and in one of its many different reaches. Joining us right now is someone who can help us to understand a little bit more about the housing action or housing stability action plan and that happens to be craig cooper craig thanks so much for being with us today hi mike thanks for having me craig we've talked about the impact that people retiring from toronto have had and we've talked to real estate boards about this yet there has been an impact we've looked at the rising cost of rent we've looked at the rising cost of a house price when you look at a stability action plan what does the word stability mean in this yeah, so Mike, I think it means a multitude of things, and and really, it's looking at at the needs of the individual. So, is it around their um, ability to pay rent? Is it around their ability to live independently? Um, is it around how they engage in community? Right. So, part of uh, a housing stability talks about all those things. It looks at um, not just one of those things, but how is somebody successful in their housing by able to be utilizing all of those different aspects. Okay, and where does this begin? Because I know this is a five-year plan, so let's kind of take stock of maybe a a couple of things that will be happening early on. How do you kick this off? Yeah, so I think what we're looking at is this plan is actually an update, right? So we we had the original housing and homelessness plan that was mandated by the province back in 2013. Uh, This plan is an update to that. But what we're focusing on is, is that no longer the housing and homelessness plan, it's just that housing stability plan. So we recognize that housing and homelessness is, is intertwined um, and that we need a, a centralized core action and a centralized focus of that plan. So that's what this plan is going to do. Um, and some of the kickoff stuff, a lot of things we're already doing as part of our plan, right? It, it's some of how we're trying to address the challenges of unsheltered homelessness, how we're working with some of our supplement programs currently, and then where we need to focus on uh, where the gaps are in the system with what's different from 2013 to versus 2019. You know, we're seeing the significant changes in rising rents. We're seeing the challenges in vacancies, right? We're all-time or significantly low vacancies in the city. Um, and then around challenges with people that are, are experiencing unsheltered homelessness and more people living on the streets. 
And in making those changes, in terms of, of things that we're going to be able to see immediately, is there anything that we'll be able to look at in a year and say, okay, this is working, or is this more of let's evaluate things kind of, you know, back in 2013 this was introduced, here it is 2019, is it kind of when it gets to be 2024, that's when we'll know? No, it's going to it's gonna happen, I expect it to happen quicker than that, Mike, as we move forward with the sort of implementation of the plan, and it's very focused on that we want to have an intended implementation. There's going to be the short-term type uh, opportunities, the mid-term opportunities, and the long-term opportunities. Exactly what those are, that's going to be part of what the stabilization or the implementation of the plan um, needs to look at. And so when I look at sort of some of the things we've done recently on our Housing Stability Week, uh, and some of the successes we've had there, like we were at 117 people that we've housed through that housing stability week. Um, you know, the, all the things that have flown or flowed out after those weeks and the connections we've made and the conversations we've had in community and the community partners that have stepped up have allowed us to, to continue the successes of that week. And I think some of those kinds of things are what this plan is going to look to do. Um, and then look at what we've done as status quo, you might say, from 2013 to now, looking at changing that to see what outcomes we could have in 2014. Uh, we do a yearly check-in, so there's that commitment to check in with the community, give an update on what we're doing and how we're, how we're working well, and what we're not working well and what we might need to, of course, correct. Craig, thanks so much for the time. Yeah, thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Good luck with the initiative. Thank you. Have a good day. That is Craig Cooper, Manager of Homeless Prevention for the City of London. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.